0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 today. Continuing on our chapter by chapter, Sunday by Sunday roller coaster through the, uh, the book of Isaiah. We don't normally teach chapter by chapter. We're normally verse-by-verse around here. In fact, the 9.30 hour is verse-by-verse, which we continue on on Wednesday evenings as well. That's our Galatians series. The uh, Isaiah series, though, is chapter-by-chapter. That means we get chapter 25 today, chapter 26 next week, 27 the week after that. This portion is called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. Chapter 24 through 27 forms a unit within the overall larger structure of the book of Isaiah, and this portion, 24 through 27, is, um, the whole book is prophetic, but this portion of the book is prophetic in an apocalyptic way. That is, it uses symbolism, it uses a lot of things that we would be more comfortable with in the book of Revelation, for example, or in portions of uh, Zechariah that are also apocalyptic with respect to these things. In fact, coming up, we've got, we've got a lot today we're going to deal with in the symbolism of chapter 25 But uh, you'll note when we get to chapter 27, we're going to have to deal with Leviathan. Leviathan, the the, uh, fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisted serpent, the dragon who lives in the sea. And so you understand why uh, passages like this might be more, uh, we would expect to find passages like this in the book of Revelation, for example, because that's the genre of literature that we study when we turn to the book of Revelation. Well, this portion of Isaiah, likewise, makes heavy use of symbols, makes, makes heavy use of such imagery as uh, we come to expect in that genre of literature. All right. In Isaiah 25, we're going to be singing. Well, we're not going to be singing, but the author is singing. Isaiah is composing a psalm, and uh, the psalm, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name. And we have content in the psalm. It's not a one of the modern-day praise and kind of repeater kind of psalms. It's just not the same thing over and over and over again. There's actual content in this psalm that describes what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will be doing from the perspective of of the fulfillment of this text. So we're going to deal with that. There'll be a new song that's going to be sung in chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city and it goes on from there. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. We'll get into that next week. So we got back-to-back uh, weeks where we're dealing with music. Isaiah is the most lyrical of all the writing prophets from the Old Testament, and uh, both today and next week, I think we're going to get a, a double dose of his, uh, of his musical composition. All right, before we get started, let's bow before the Lord in prayer and ask God to bless our thinking and to guide us into the truth of this passage. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come humbly before you once again, recognizing, Father, that as every time we come together, uh, none of us deserves to be here. It's by your grace, Father, that we are saved, your amazing grace, Father, that your Son took our place on the cross, that we might receive his righteousness imputed to to our account. I thank you, Father, that because we are in your Son, we are entitled to receive this instruction. And I thank you that you make yourself known to each one of us. You give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. I pray for this morning, because this chapter is among the deep things of God, Father, that we would study to show ourselves approved, that we would have a framework to understand the prophetic things yet to come, the coming tribulation, the coming millennium, the new heavens and the new earth. Father, keep these things in our thinking that we don't lose sight of of your overall plan. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, just an introductory note before we start tearing it apart. It's only 12 verses, actually, so we'll do better perhaps today than we have done in in recent chapters. Um, However, what are we dealing with in this chapter? The summary for chapter 25. You just want to know in a nutshell. Uh, Chapter 25 is a psalm of praise. Praise. There are different kinds of psalms, of course. If you study the book of Psalms, then you understand the laments and the praises and the the different uh, genres within psalms itself. This one is a psalm of praise. And it prophetically looks forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And this becomes important primarily because I think the millennium is abused. It is mistaught and abused in many prophetic contexts. And even by folks that should know better, sometimes lose sight of what it is that they're teaching when they're teaching the millennium. So we have a psalm here that gives us a lot of millennial information. And uh, attention in this chapter must be given to what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, and then what the Lord will do. And the whole perspective for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do comes in the frame of reference of the millennium itself, all right? The millennial reign itself. So from the perspective of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, once it is inaugurated, Once he is seated on the throne in Jerusalem, then the the song that Isaiah composes here, this psalm, will be a, a reality in terms of past, present, future. You can't take it past, present, and future from our perspective today, in 2015 AD, because for us today, it's all future. He has yet to do the deliverances, the past rescues, and the things that are being celebrated here in these early verses as far as what the Lord has done. So, we have a millennial praise, and it's useful. It's good that we have this praise. And it's good that we have this praise from an Old Testament standpoint moving forward. I think too much of our millennial doctrine comes out of Revelation, and it really doesn't belong in Revelation. It belongs in the prophets. It belongs in the Old Testament. And most of what we study related to the millennium isn't even the millennium anyway. It's the new heavens and the new earth is what we are studying, but we call it the millennium, and that's a mistake when we do. So if you've never had this kind of exposure before, then you might learn something this morning and take it with you and start thinking of the millennium as the failure that it is. Okay? And uh, that might be a shock. I like to shock people when I say that. Uh, But the millennium is going to end in a failure. And we're going to see that today. Every dispensation has ended in failure. From Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, to Noah's flood, to the Tower of Babel, to uh, you know, not just the Gentiles are ruining their stewardship. Israel blew it in their stewardship. They crucified the Christ, all right? Every stewardship has ended in failure. The church is going to end in wide-scale uh, wide apostasy. We're going to have such a, an apathy for doctrine at the end of the church. Uh, we, we wonder, is anyone going to bother to notice when the, when we're, the trumpet sounds and the, the church is raptured out of here? You know, is that going to make a big impact in our society or in our culture when we're gone? Likewise, the millennium will end in a failure called the Gog Magog Rebellion. It ends in a failure. We're going to see that here before you leave today. The the only stewardship that does not end in failure is the final stewardship on the new earth. When Jesus Christ himself reigns for a thousand generations over those who love him, that will be a stewardship, the fullness of times that will end in great victory as he hands the, the kingdom up to the Father. I showed this to you last week, I'll show it to you again, and I don't know, if it's useful, we'll, uh, we'll show it frequently. It's in the hallway, by the way, if you get yourself a, a Plan of God reader, the ABC readers that are in the hallway, and this uh, dispensational diagram unfolds from the back cover, so you can unfold it, and you can stare at it, and you can memorize it, and you can learn it. It's a timeline between Alpha and Omega. God, of course, is, uh, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. And the unfolding of all the stewardships within the bounds of time. Remember, God is the only timeless being eternally outside of space and time. But angels and men, we were created within the boundaries of time. And uh, so the angels had their stewardship in which Satan rebelled. There's one that ended in failure. The the stewardship of man, sometimes called the dispensation of Gentiles, um, that ended in failure. Of course, there were various ages within those dispensations. Israel how to stewardship, but you will note Israel is not yet done with their stewardship. That's why there's a, a bit of a, a parenthesis here, and it continues on after the church is gone, that uh, Israel will have their stewardship restored once the uh, church is, departs the earth at the rapture. Of course, the church, this is where you are. I should have put a big X on there, like at the, at the mall. When you walk in, there's the map at the mall, and it says you are here. Okay? Um could put that there on our dispensational chart. Uh, We are here. Important to note, within the church itself, there have been two ages. The age of the apostles, and we're not there. All right? We are no longer in apostolic Christianity. If uh, someone tells you that he's an apostle, or he's a prophet, or he's going to do signs and wonders and miracles and all this stuff, he is dispensationally maladjusted. All right? And you'll have an opportunity to perhaps... Reflect upon the accurate teaching you've received, and if he's interested, you might share with him. Um, Don't feel like you have to fix him, though, or change his doctrine. Just know where he's coming from and tell him to have a nice day. And so when we are gone, then, when we are gone, Israel returns to their stewardship. And first of all, they will have their age of tribulation, and then they will have the age of the millennial reign. All right. Now that might be also slightly different than other schematics you've studied before. If you've studied uh, Ryrie or Larkin or, or Schaefer or Theme or any other dis, uh, dispensational schematics, typically speaking, they will only view Israel's future in terms of the tribulation, and then they make the millennium a whole different stewardship. I put the millennium under the stewardship of Israel, and there's reasons for that. But then after the millennium is over. After the millennium is over, what then? What happens after the millennium? What happens after the thousand years? And we've got to get in our minds, especially here in this chapter, it's only a thousand years. All right? It's only a thousand years. And you get that in your mind. All right? And the idea of only depends on your, your frame of reference. Okay? If you say something is only going to last Uh, you know, a couple of weeks, that's not long at all. But if you're a four-year-old and you tell them something is only going to last three weeks, that's like forever. You know, a four-year-old thinks that's forever. You know, the older you get, time compresses, right? And you just, you know, you think, well, five years from now, 10 years from now, and it goes by like that. Well, when we are already out of our mortality in our resurrection bodies, what's a thousand years going to seem like to us? Like the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. So it's only a 1,000 years. And as we read through this, I promise I'm going to read these verses in Isaiah 25. As we read these verses, we need to understand that the millennium is only a 1,000 years, and yet the promises given to Abraham and David, they're not millennial promises. They're eternal promises. And that, I think, is what most people miss. I think that's what most dispensationalists miss. I think that's what Schofield missed, Okay. Of course, he's got it straight now because he's been in heaven now for quite a while. But here's the thing. If you view the millennium as a fulfillment of Abrahamic covenant, fulfillment of Davidic covenant, fulfillment of anything, then you've got a flawed understanding of what eternal means. They are eternal promises. Israel has promised an eternal kingdom. Eternal, not millennial. Not millennial. It's like, think about your eternal life. Do you want your eternal life to expire in a thousand years? They say, well, you know, I promised you eternal life, but come on, it's been a thousand years already, we're done. Okay? Eternal is eternal. And the millennium is only that. It is only a thousand years. It is only a day. It is really the fi- it is the day of the Lord. The tribulation millennium is the day of the Lord. Okay? And it is only a day. What follows then is the real thing that we're looking forward to. And I'll explain that as well. All right. Back to where we were. Isaiah celebrates what the Lord has done. Isaiah celebrates what the Lord has done to bring Israel through the tribulation and into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Isaiah composes this psalm, but he's doing so from the millennial perspective. And we have the first four verses here, although technically verse 3 is a is a will. And we'll talk about that too. All right. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness for you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. So there it is. Verses 1 through 4 contains what the Lord has done. And nested within that is a tiny little what... A strong people are going to do. All right. And years ago, when I put this in the Through the Bible notebook, I really misoutlined this. I included verse three as a part of the future will, what the Lord will do. All right. And we don't get to what the Lord will do until six and following. The Lord of Hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples. Um, verse seven. On this mountain he will swallow up. Uh, verse eight. He will swallow up. Um, Verse 10, the hand of the Lord will rest. So you see all of the will do, will do, will do's? All right. That's verses 6 and following or 6 through 12. That's what the Lord will do. And we'll get there. We're going to be there in a moment. First, we're looking at what the Lord has done. Okay. What the Lord has done. Verses 1 through 4. Now, nested within what the Lord has done is this little verse 3 there. And like I say, 10 years ago or whatever, through the Bible we did in 2002, I mistakenly took verse 3, ripped it out of its context and shoved it into the the future, shoved it into the, the portion of the chapter, and I was totally wrong for doing that, shoved it into the part of the chapter that's looking forward to what the Lord will do. Yes, it's future tense, but it's future tense pertaining to those ruthless nations. A strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. So keep it where it sits in the past completed work of the Lord because it's on the basis of what the Lord has done that these ruthless nations are going to adjust themselves for the millennial kingdom. And I'll show you what I mean by that here in a moment. All right. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. Not surprising, I don't think, that uh, they start singing when they get to the millennium. What did, what did Israel do when they crossed the Red Sea? First thing they did, they got through the Red Sea, the water came crashing down, they started singing. Miriam wrote a song, Moses wrote a song, they started to sing, they started to celebrate. How many of the Psalms, we think about the Ascension Psalms, we think about the fact that God designed Israel to worship and to worship in song, celebrating what God has done on their behalf. Not a surprise then that when they enter into their millennial kingdom, they're going to have some songs they're going to be singing. This one, the one in chapter 26, the taunt that we learned back in chapter 14 when they rebuked Satan, uh, all of these are millennial songs. We have the songbook for the millennial kingdom. All right, Every generation of man can rightly claim Isaiah 25.1. Every generation can. However, the survivors of the tribulation, they will especially be singing extra loud. <laughs> okay, They're going to sing with maybe a little extra gusto. But you and I can make the same claim. Oh, Lord, you are my God. Isn't isn't he your God? I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. Can we not sing that? Of course we can. You have worked wonders. (laughs) I think of everything God's done for me. I'm amazed. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And, And to me, I love that. That is just so such a blessing. Here I am just living one day at a time, working my way through time, and God's got it all worked out. He's had it worked out long ago. Before the foundation of the world, he put a plan in motion. And he's been following that plan ever since. So every generation of man can rightly claim Isaiah 25, 1. However, the survivors of the tribulation will especially be singing this psalm. And I think in the context here, we can relate this over to Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9, and boy, it just gets it just gets vivid. You know, think about if you survive hell on earth are you going to have some things to say afterwards? (laughs) Like, man, can you believe what the Lord brought me through? And that's the nature of it. That's the nature of the angelic conflict. That's the nature of the Christian way of life. God hasn't promised that we'll have no problems in our life. The promise is that he sees us through it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you, Lord, for walking me through that. Thank you, Lord, for providing. Thank you for being with me. I look back and I think, wow, I'm glad you're in charge. I would have never, uh, you know, I'd have been a basket case if that was up to me. Sing to the Lord a new song. This is Psalm 98. For he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. That's why you cannot be a replacement theologian. You think God's done with Israel? Then, when does this verse ever get fulfilled? Just rip it out of your Bible if you're a replacement theologian. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. That's not Brian Williams there. That's the musical instrument, the lyre. Okay? Sorry. With trumpets and sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Do you think that's oceanographic? Or do you think it's angelic? The world and those who dwell in it. See, we have both the angelic and the human dimensions of the moral cosmos. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord for his coming to judge the earth. Remember, when he came the first time, it wasn't to judge. When he came the first time, he said, don't think I've come to judge the earth, I came to save the earth. But when he comes the second time, you bet there's going to be judgment. There's going to be a whole barrel of judgment. All right. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So every generation can rightly claim this verse, but the tribulational survivors, they will especially be singing this psalm. Symbolically, what is this city of chaos? What is this palace of the proud? Man, we want to stop here and take six weeks to teach this and can't do it. You have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers, or I think I prefer the palace of the proud. The palace of the proud. This is the dominion of Satan. This is his world headquarters. This has been his world headquarters ever since the original Tower of Babel. He's had this world headquarters going all through human history. In the end times, Babel becomes the opponent to Jerusalem. You could think of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation as Babel versus Jerusalem, right? The palace of the proud. Last week, I I failed to highlight the fact it was called the city of chaos. In uh, chapter 24 and verse 10, the city of chaos is broken down. But here it's the fortified city. The palace of the proud is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. It will never be rebuilt. Satan will be confined for the thousand years. He will be released at the end, but he will never again be permitted to establish a global capital or establish a philosophy that runs the world the way that he does today. If you ever do some tribulational studies, of course, and you want to take a look at Antichrist, you want to study the the, uh, center of Babel rebellion against the Lord... But this is a theme that goes all the way from Genesis 11 in the very original Tower of Babel all the way to Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 when we see the uh, eschatological uh, prophecies pertaining to religious Babylon and to commercial Babylon. All right? Religious Babylon in chapter 17, commercial Babylon in chapter 18. More there, but I'm going to force myself to move on. Ooh, that hurt. All right. Great Gentile nations will pay tribute with feigned obedience during their forced subjugation. Great Gentile nations, and should the United States of America survive long enough, then we would be included as well. This Gentile nation, likewise, will be required to submit to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And if we don't submit, he deals with us. He deals with every Gentile nation. Described here, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you, and yet they're only doing so because they've been beaten into that submission. Remarkably enough, and it doesn't take long, and the human resentment starts to rear its ugly head. Doesn't take long at all. You say, but 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 at the beginning of the millennium, uh, all the unbelievers are thrown into hell. We start only with believers for the entire millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah? Only believers. Believers can't go carnal. Believers can't harbor resentments or mental attitude sins. Believers can't give birth to unbelievers who so will be even more embittered than they are. Say, well, no one would possibly survive the tribulation and then go carnal. I'll show you an entire generation that walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they got carnal in the wilderness as if God had not miraculously delivered them. There's a whole concept here called feigned obedience. And this became a thesis of a paper I submitted once upon a time and a concept I taught once upon a time about the failure of the millennium because of the feigned obedience on the part of the Gentiles. And so, uh, besides what we see here, in uh, cities of ruthless nations, will revere you. Well, why do I want ruthless nations revering me? <laughs> All right, because they're being forced to. Well, I kind of like them to stop being ruthless, right? Can they? Can we? Can we get them to adjust their thinking? Can we cause them to uh, repent or reform or something? Why? Why are they ruthless? All right. Psalm eighteen forty four. Historically, this was fulfilled by King David. Of course, in typology, he's the pattern for Jesus Christ. And he talks about the great victories that he had, and all of these victories in Psalm eighteen. I won't read the whole psalm to you. It's a fun one. But um, I, verse thirty-seven: I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. All right? He's not looking to negotiate a settlement with anybody. He's looking to defeat his enemies and then dictate to them the terms of what the peace is going to be on his terms. I beat them. Verse 42. They cried to help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. David received tribute from people he never even met before. Solomon received tribute from far and wide. Notice though, as soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Now the term submit to me is a term of deceit. It's a term of lying So they are feigning obedience. They're giving feigned obedience. Like a disobedient child and you force them to apologize to their sister. And they say, sorry. (laughs) Okay? They don't mean it. And they wouldn't be saying it if you weren't making them say it. All right? And then as soon as you're not looking, they're either going to take it back or they're going to do it again or whatever. Okay? But as long as they're under your thumb, then they grit their teeth and they do what they have to do. And this was historically fulfilled in King David, but is prophetic for Jesus Christ. It is prophetic for Jesus Christ. Over to Psalm 66. How do I know it's prophetic for Jesus Christ? Well, we have it elsewhere. We have it in Psalms, we have it in Isaiah, we have it in Revelation. We have it in Daniel. All right, Psalm 66. Verses 1-4, through shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. Say to God how awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power. Your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. What choice do they have? All the earth will worship you and sing praises to you. Some will even mean it. Many won't. They'll be singing it. They'll be joining. They will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. And think about it, generation after generation for the thousand years, by the time the thousand years is over and Satan is finally released out of the abyss, you'll notice it doesn't say that he had to scrape and find one or two malcontents here and there. He gathered the armies together as the sand of the seashore. The rebellion against Jesus Christ will be global at the end of his thousand year reign. The only faithful nation, get this, the only faithful nation on the face of the earth is going to be Israel. <laughs> How's that for a laugh? The most faithless, thick-necked, you know, st- st- bunch of Old Testament jerks, but they're going to be faithful in the Millennial Kingdom. Wow, how about that? Psalm eighty-one, fifteen. Another reference to the feigned obedience, the vocabulary here for deceit. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. And their time of punishment would be forever. See, he knows the heart. He's not, they're not fooling anybody. But in their permissive will, the rebellion is tolerated. All right, so they will pay tribute with feigned obedience during their forced subjugation. And the reason why is because the millennium itself is going to be a confrontational reign Jesus Christ will subdue and silence his enemies. It's not flowery beds of ease. It is hard work for Jesus Christ to rule with a rod of iron. Why is it a rod of iron? Because it's needed. Isaiah 25, 5. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Now we've switched from what he has done to what he is doing. Verse 5 is a single verse that describes what he is doing. We had four verses describing what he's done. That's what brought Israel into their millennium. Verse 5 describes what he's doing. This is the activity of Jesus Christ during the millennium. And then verse 6 and following is what will happen after the millennium. Notice, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. That's future. What's he doing now? That's only verse 5. One little verse all by itself. Isn't that great? Say so, well, that just goes by like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's even less than that in Revelation chapter twenty. The revelation, uh, the the millennium in Revelation chapter twenty is in between two verses. It's in between verse six and verse seven, I think, of Revelation twenty. We'll see that in just a few minutes. Like heat and drought, that's no fun. You subdue the uproar of aliens. Well, why are they in an uproar? You would think with perfect environment and perfect government, they would have nothing left to complain about. Okay? <laughs> to moan and complain. And why are they in an uproar? They have perfect government, they have perfect environment. The earth has been restored to pre flood conditions. There's animal hostility, uh, the animal hostility is done. The lion lies down with the lamb. Um, like heat and drought, you have subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat, by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. The song of the ruthless is silenced. That feigned obedience, that quasi-worship, that external show, he's not going to put up with it. He knows it for what it is. And this is what he's doing. It is a confrontational reign where Jesus Christ will subdue and silence his enemies. Anytime a military invades, anytime a military occupies, the people who are occupied don't like being occupied. And That's why you end up with insurgencies. You end up with guerrilla warfare. You end up with a whole lot of stuff that happens. All right? And you either have to be so brutal and ruthless about putting it down that it's, to them it's not worth, it's not worth the insurgency Or what else are you going to do? Well, Jesus Christ is going to be ruthless and he's going to put it down. All right? The nations are going to be in an uproar. Kings and rulers are going to chafe at their fetters and their cords according to Psalm 2.9. See, this is the right context for Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples of the earth devise a vain thing. You familiar with Psalm 2? (laughs) People think this was first advent. No, it's second advent. Second advent. This is the millennium right here in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. World governments are going to hate the fact that they are subject to the greater son of David, seated on David's throne in Jerusalem. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Cast away their cords from us. They don't like being under those cords. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Every satanic rebellion, every human rebellion, God's just laughing. He's seen it before the foundation of the world. He's planned for it. Human and angelic volition does not thwart his plan. He lets it run its course, but he still accomplishes his good pleasure. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You can moan and complain about it all you want, but he's my king. I put him there. He's my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Seated on David's throne on Mount Zion. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me. Oh, now wait a minute. You mean he's seated on a throne and yet there's more he can have? Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. Look at that. He's seated on a throne, but there's more that he can have. He's ruling in Jerusalem and he's king of Israel, but there's more that he can have. Even in the millennium, there are still boundaries, the land grant that belongs to Israel. Beyond those boundaries are Gentile lands, including all these kings and their uproar. Well, a day is coming and the Father says, I'm going to give you those lands too. The very ends of the earth. You're not only going to rule in Jerusalem as the son of David, you're going to rule over all the earth as the son of man. You're entitled to all humanity's service and reverence and worship. In the meantime, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. For Jesus Christ to try to govern the earth without this, it would be like parents trying to raise a child without corporate discipline. What do you end up with if you don't discipline your child? You end up with a monster, all right? We can illustrate that after church if you'd like. No, I'm teasing. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the psalm that speaks of the upcoming millennium. Likewise, Revelation 2.27, Revelation 12.5, all of these reference the conquering, and they reference the subduing of the enemies. Revelation 2.27. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning. Star, this is part of the rewards that are given to he who overcomes. We, of course, are participating with the Lord as the bride of Christ. Revelation twelve five. This is another passage with a lot of symbolism. The dragon is waiting to devour the woman and devour the baby as she gives birth. And here's the dragon. We'll see him in a couple of weeks when we talk about Leviathan, the twisted dragon. And his uh, tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And this is obviously what Herod was attempting to accomplish when he massacred all the babies in Bethlehem, the male babies in Bethlehem. There was the dragon attempting to eat the Christ. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There it is again. He doesn't rule them with a feather duster. <laughs> you know. He doesn't, you know, wipe their nose with a tissue, pat them on the hand and tell them everything's okay. He rules them with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Wow, there's a Life of Christ series for you, taught in one verse. <laughs> birth... Ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Jesus Christ. He was caught up to God and to his throne. But see, he still is going to rule with a rod of iron. 1915. Revelation 1915. Here we are. Do you know how to ride a horse? I'm hoping. I'm not very good at it. I've done it maybe five times in my life. And I've been very uncomfortable every time. Well, By the time we reach this point, I'll be be over it. I'll be in my resurrection body and no more pain, no more death. More confidence on that horse. So uh, we descend after him. He descends. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Wait a minute, he's not going to negotiate a peace settlement? He's going to conquer so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a the rod of iron. So the sword is to conquer, the rod is to rule. He treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Man, oh that it were today. <laughs> All right, well, it's at least seven years away. Jerusalem will feature morning executions of wickedness. Morning executions of wickedness. What do you watch when you wake up in the morning? You turn on Fox and Friends, or you turn on you know, one of the local Austin news shows or whatever? Morning by morning, according to, Revelation, according to Psalm 101, verse 8. Psalm 101, verse 8. Think about it. If you are so committed to righteous government that you search your entire administration every morning, for rebellion. Hmm. I will verse three. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. David says, if that's if somebody like that's in my administration, they're gone. I don't want them part of my kingdom, part of my throne. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. Now this is David speaking these things, but we know prophetically it's really Jesus in the millennium. How can David look upon a man's heart? My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. What what a privilege, right? Remember David brought Mephibosheth into his house and got to eat at his table and he was so gracious towards the son of Jonathan? He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Imagine an American president saying, if any of my cabinet secretaries tells a lie, they're gone. Okay, never mind. I'm not getting political. No, no, no. I'm teaching a verse. Then verse 8, every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land. So if there's an unbeliever that happens to visit Jerusalem, he better get gone before sundown, right? He better be back home before morning. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. I think the territory of Israel has to be maintained in its holiness and most especially of all, the city precincts of of Jerusalem. They will be executed morning by morning if they are foolish enough to stay in town overnight. So, that's a lot better than Fox and Friends or any other morning entertainment you might pay attention to. A morning by morning reminder that the Lord our God is a consuming fire. Annual pilgrimages for worship and tribute will be required of every Gentile nation. I've cited this a couple of times. I don't know that I've put the verses on the screen, but there it is. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. Zechariah. Say, whoever reads Zechariah. Every scripture is god breathing and profitable. The whole counsel of the Word of God tells this message. Zechariah 14. Of all the nations who are left, that went up against Jerusalem, they will go from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so they say, United States of America, during, back during the tribulation, you, love, you raised your armies and came up against Jerusalem. You came up against Jesus Christ at Armageddon. You are required annually for a thousand years to worship. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem, it doesn't say if, it says whichever ones don't. And I believe throughout that thousand years more and more and more of them are going to start declining the tribute. Whichever of the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, there will be no rain on them. There will be no rain on them. So France, or whoever, Egypt, Egypt, I'll stick with the example here. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. Sorry, Egypt. Your king, your president, your whatever, did not come to make the pilgrimage to pay the tribute to Jesus Christ on the Feast of Booths. Your rain is cut off. I don't know if it's forever, or if it's just for the year, he's got a chance next year to turn it back on again. Like when your landlord turns off your water. All right, what do you got to pay to get your water bill? You You know, get... Your water turned back on? or This is the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booth. It doesn't say if, it says those who. Those who. And I think that's why the king they devise a vain thing. I think they start to conspire amongst themselves. Saying, all right, don't go up, we'll cover you. We'll go up and we'll maintain our feigned subjection. We'll keep our water turned on and we'll take care of you. He's way ahead of them. He knows exactly what they're doing. He rules them with a rod of iron. Finally, the final satanic rebellion of Gog Magog is going to be destroyed by God the Father from heaven. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. This is why I say the millennium ends in failure. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It ends in failure. Yeah, it started with all believers. But how long does it take? Only one generation the children of the tribulational survivors, and they're born in the millennium. And their entire lives, Satan and the fallen angels and the demons have all been bound. And yet, how many of them don't get saved? Or how many of them get saved and still walk carnally? Interestingly enough, when the thousand years are completed, this is why I'm not surprised there's only one verse in Isaiah 25 that deals with the millennium. Four verses of what he has done, six verses of what he's going to do, but only verse 5 talks about the millennium itself, what he is doing, ruling with a rod of iron. Only one verse. Here in Revelation, it's it's even less than that. Because you have uh, the promise of the thousand years. Do you see that in verse 2? The devil, he's bound for a thousand years. He's thrown into the abyss. He won't deceive the nations until the thousand years are completed. In verse 4, tribulational martyrs come to life. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, they don't come to life until the thousand years are completed. Uh, The priests of God and Christ, they reign with Him for a thousand years. In verse 6, you see that? Look at that. Verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. All those verses talking thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. And you're thinking, wow, this millennium, that's going to be a big deal. That's got to be a big deal. He keeps talking about it. 1000 years, 1000 years, 1000 years. 1000 years, 1000 years. And then you look at verse 7. When the 1000 years are completed. Oh wow. <laughs> it's over already. Look at that. You believe that? Look at that. It's done. Wow, that went by fast. In between verse 6 and verse 7 is the millennium of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 20. When the 1000 years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. See, he must be, we're told, he must be released for a short time. Back in verse 3, it's the language of have to. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Well, why? Why does he have to? God doesn't have any have to's. God's sovereign. God has some have to's. Satan must be released for a short time. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. He has no hard time at all gathering his armies because they've been building in their resentment. They've been harboring that bitterness for all that time. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Remember, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs and laughs and laughs and then he sends fire down and kills them all. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Notice, where the beast and the false prophet, they're still there. They've been there for a thousand years already. They got, they got thrown into there at the end of chapter 19. And they're still there a thousand years later. Don't let anybody tell you that it's a place of annihilation where you stop existing. It is not a place of annihilation. The lake of fire is an eternal place of torment for all eternity. Verse 10 proves it because false prophet and antichrist are still there. The final satanic rebellion of Gog Magog will be destroyed by God the Father from heaven. So what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and then what Jesus is going to do. What do you have to look forward to in the millennium? I thought we were looking forward to the millennium. No, we're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's after the millennium. The millennium is not the, the final plan of the Father. It's the transitional day the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, the day of judgment. It's it's really, it's a provisional government. As you you make a military invasion, you occupy a country, you rule with a provisional government until such time as you can put the permanent civilian government in place. The uh, millennial reign is the occupational, provisional military government. Only for a thousand years. Just waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. The millennium is only a thousand years and it looks forward to an even greater age and a lavish banquet on the way. It is only a thousand years. It looks forward to an even greater age and a lavish banquet on the way. Why are there prophets in the millennium? (laughs) Because there's something to look forward to. All right? You know, I've never had anyone explain to me if they, if they think the millennium, see what, what happens in Schofield is he equated the millennium with the fullness of time. He equated the millennium with eternity future and all he said was, well when the thousand years are over then new heavens, new earth, but it's, there's no new stewardship, there's no new dispensation. He rejected a, a dispensation of the fullness of time after the uh, great white throne judgment. And so by putting it all together into the millennium then that becomes the goal, that becomes eternity future, there's nothing else after that. Well, then why do you have prophets? It's kind of a, kind of a lonely ministry if you're a prophet, but there's nothing future to talk about. Okay, No, there's animal ritual. There's animal sacrifices and prophets. There's an awful lot to talk about. There's a tremendous amount of eschatology that has to come in the millennium. That's a beautiful thing. All right. Verses 6 through 12, everything that Yahweh is going to do. Isaiah. Boy, I'm glad it's not communion Sunday. If this was communion Sunday, I'd be, I'd be done. All right, Isaiah 25, 6-12. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all peoples nations there's a lot of teaching has to go into that right now there's a veil over israel's heart whenever moses is read a veil lies over their heart there's a veil that lies over israel there will be a veil over the gentiles there's a doctrine there that has to be dealt with he will swallow up death for all time it's not till the new heavens and the new earth that there's no more death no more crying no more tears the first things have passed away He uh, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears from all faces. Remember, there's still death in the millennium. It says the youth will die at 100, right? Well, you think, well, that's kind of cool. But it's still death at 100. When they die, we say, oh, he was so young. How sad. He was only 100, okay? But there's still death in the millennium. It's not until the new heavens and new earth that he swallows up death for all time and he wipes away all tears. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab, more symbolism here, Moab will be trodden down in his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. Ooh, that's nasty. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. Well, this really gets nasty. Swimming in that manure pile? Um, but the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. And So the final satanic Gog Magog rebellion is done away with. He's looking forward to the future new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We've already seen, as per Psalm 2, in the millennium, the begotten Son is installed on a throne, but a greater reign is promised. A greater reign is promised. He's already seated. As for me, I have installed my Christ upon Mount Zion. But then he says, ask of me, and I will surely give the ends of the earth, the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And even the, the compromise Dallas Seminary is doing these days, the, the whole approach of progressive dispensationalism, where they're trying to find common ground with covenant theology, all they're doing is making a mess of their own theology and surrendering to the covenant, guys. And, and, and there's no reason for it. But the, the mechanism they find to do it is they conflate the right hand of God with the throne of David. The whole basis for the concept is that Jesus Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, was seated at the Father's right hand, and without any verses to prove it, they say, by the way, seated at the Father's right hand also equals the throne of David. And so they've got this already not yet blending and blurring of Israel and the church and the kingdom and all this other stuff. They still view Armageddon as future, millennium as future, but they say he's already reigning on the throne of David at the father's right hand. Well, David's throne was never at the father's right hand. David's throne is always on the earth. David's throne was vacated by Nebuchadnezzar and left vacated. It's not seated until victory at Armageddon. Anyway, it's... it's, the whole emphasis on progressive dispensationalism, I think it damages the whole concept of throne of David and fails to realize what the throne of David even is. And it's a step beyond that from the, when the, sure the son of David sits on the throne of David, but the son of man is going to rule over all mankind. John 5, 27, he's given authority to judge all mankind. Why? Why is all judgment given to him? Well, because Adam abdicated it. And now the second Adam is going to accept it and be faithful in it. John five twenty seven. Oh my. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. When God the Father begat the humanity of Jesus Christ. We'll see that Wednesday morning from Proverbs 8. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And of course, believers are resurrected for their rewards. Unbelievers are resurrected to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. The Son of Man will rule over mankind. Now, this was the position Adam had been in, but Adam failed. Adam surrendered. His sovereignty of the cosmos was abdicated to Satan, and it's been Satan's world ever since. He is the God of this age. But Jesus Christ is claiming it back, and he will conquer. He has it by birth, and he has it by conquest. Right now, He just has it by birth. Talking about our Savior. No more death and no more tears. These are realities in the fullness of times, in the new heavens and on the new earth. Compare Isaiah 25 with Revelation 21, I think it becomes clear. Isaiah uh, Revelation 21. This is after the millennium. After the great white throne. After the judgment of all the unbelievers. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them, God with us. I believe Jesus accepts his title as King Emmanuel. He accepts the title of Emmanuel that Isaiah prophesied. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Quit looking for the millennium. Look for after the millennium. Look for the new heavens and new earth. According to His promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the reality, not for the millennium. It's the reality for the fullness of times. Ephesians 1.10, the fullness of times. God the Father never lost sight of the fullness of times and every plan that He ever put forward with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time, the summing up of all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Wow. By the time the fullness of times comes about, there is no more under the earth. According to Ephesians 1.10, everything is things in heaven and things on the earth. There is no more under the earth. At the time that the fullness of times comes about, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what we're looking forward to? We're supposed to. Isaiah speaks about it. chapter 65 and chapter 66 promises the new heavens and the new earth. Peter talks about it, Second Peter 3:13, I quoted every message. We just saw it in Revelation 21: one. In this context, Jesus Christ will serve as the eternal Father to a thousand generations of those who love Him. To a thousand generations of those who love Him. How can the Son serve as a Father? Well, it happens. (laughs) They grow up, they leave home, they get married. They become fathers. But how do they learn to become fathers? Well, if they learn from their father. And that's what Jesus said. He says, the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The father showed the son the work of the father. And the son is about to start doing the work of the father, but he will do it in the new heavens and the new earth. First, he needs a bride. Do you want to become a father before you're married? No, you should have a bride first. Okay? Okay. Listen to me, I'm like an old fuddy-duddy. No, this is biblical. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Alright. The bride first. The father provides a bride for his son. And at the time, and even before the time, the Father is training the Son. He says, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he, the Father himself, is doing that the Son may do likewise. Jesus Christ is learning to fulfill all the paterological functions that God the Father has been doing ever since the Alpha moment of eternity. And in the new heavens and new earth, God the Father will set back, and Jesus Christ will personally achieve everything that God the Father has been doing up till now. Verse 7 of Revelation 21, this is the Alpha and the Omega, this is Jesus Christ speaking. I will be his God and he will be my son. The Alpha and the Omega, the God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the everlasting father that Isaiah spoke of. Wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, everlasting father, Isaiah 9, 6. The reason being is we're going to have a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ according to Deuteronomy 7, 9, 1 Chronicles 16, 15, Psalm 105 and verse 8, and I'm out of time. You'll have to look those verses up on your own. But what are you going to find? You're going to find a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Has that ever been historically fulfilled? I believe it will be fulfilled. God's Word never returns void. He doesn't make a promise and then not fulfill it. Well, it's just flowery language. It's just poetry. It's hyperbole, blah, 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 blah. When did you dump your little hermeneutic? I still kept mine. I believe when he says a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ, we're going to observe not on this earth, on the next earth, we're going to observe a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And the millennium is not long enough to do it. That's only a thousand years. How long does it take for a thousand generations to get birthed? Alright. How long is that fullness of time going to be? Well, get yourself an ABC Reader on your way out. All of this is in the Plan of God Reader. and Messages like this are also on the website. uh, Hard to imagine. We have a part in this. (laughs) We're ruling with Him. We get to rule with Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. And we are fellow heirs in Him. Let's pray. Father, there is so much to look forward to. We say, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. But Father, we realize that the initial stage of that kingdom is simply a a short thousand year span. And Father, that really shouldn't surprise us. When David first became king, he just had a short reign over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. It wasn't until seven years later he finally became, became king over all of Israel. And there's a pattern in that, Father. I thank you that our Savior is going to have a short reign on on the throne of David for a thousand years, but then for a thousand generations of those who love him, he will rule the ends of the earth, the new earth. I look forward to these things being fulfilled, Father. I look forward not only to a millennium where he rules with a rod of iron, but to a, a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. No more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The first things have passed away and no rod of iron. In the thousand generations, Father, it's those who love Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to seeing those days as well. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I do thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.